Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Jumping around and spinning and throwing his arms <laughs> around. And it was really fun. Like, there was something about the connection. We never released the game. Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the game developer's podcast. Your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. I have a great episode for you today, so let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. I have a great episode for you today. We have Ben Perez and Tom Eastman, two of the three founders at Trinket Studios, a small indie studio based here in Chicago, best known for the game Battle Chef Brigade. I'm going to kick things off. Here we go. Okay, I have Tom and Ben here from Trinket Studios today. How are you guys doing? Great. Yeah, doing good. Excellent. Yeah, you guys uh, have been going for a while with the studio, and uh, I think there's going to be a lot of great advice and uh, tips you're going to share today. Would you mind talking about what your current roles are? Absolutely. So I'm Tom. This is my voice. And uh, I'm the president of Trinket Studios, but since there's only three of us, uh, I'm really just a programmer who has to deal with the most Twitter and taxes <laughs> out of the three of us. <laughs> Twitter and taxes. That's, yeah, the, that's the, the tease. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that Ben and I split production, but uh, so it's, I, I do as much of the painful stuff so that Ben and Eric can focus. Mm-hmm. I have far less hats to wear than Tom does, but consider myself a programmer first, but slowly uh, getting getting the habit of trying to put the producer hat on when it's needed. So I think that's a skill that we've all been learning to hone up on here. Mm-hmm. Cool. Just for those that don't know, what's the big game you guys have released? We recently, oh, wow, I guess over a year and a half ago, released Battle mm-hmm. Chef Brigade on switch and steam and recently last year came out on ps4 with a big deluxe mm-hmm. update and so now we're wrapping up the uh, final the art book is the last kickstarter backer reward that we have to ah, deliver i'm sure eric will have some awesome stuff for that 
Oh yeah, he's he's been doing an amazing job. That's great. So I like to kind of like let people know how you guys got in the game industry. You mind each talking about how you got started in the video game industry? Absolutely. So I was one of those kids who basically knew what I wanted to do from a really young age. At, at like third or fourth grade, I had narrowed it down to major league soccer player, astronaut, <laughs> or game developer. And then uh, I got too tall to be an astronaut, apparently, or to be a fighter pilot. And I wasn't really that good at soccer after all. So I set on game <laughs> development. So I knew like early on. And so I was in high school. I took a lot of uh, programming classes and did a lot of independent mm-hmm. studies, taught myself OpenGL and C++ made some really, really bad games. Yeah, but you made myself. them. That's great. Yep. Yeah, that was, that's the point, I guess. Um, those got me into Dartmouth College for computer science. So I studied like really theoretical computer science, but I interned at Garage Games, the makers of the Torque mm-hmm. game engine, which I think now all that has uh, disappeared into the ether and been crushed by <laughs> Unity, but it was, Torque was sort of like Unity before uh, hobbyists could yeah, be Yeah, I, I remember Torque. <laughs> yeah really understand programming to be able to make games in Torque. But I interned there, worked on their 2D, they called it Torque mm-hmm. Game Builder for a while. And then I did some freelance work for them during college. And then my uh, thesis advisor said, you better not just settle on the first company you work for. You should check out mm-hmm. another company. I was a big Halo fanboy, so I knew about how Seropian started right. Wide Load. So I Wide Load and interned there, got on the Shorts team, which was sort of a I, I called it a funded indie. It was like five people making really small right. games for phone and different online stuff. And that was sort of a dream come true for me. Then when I started full-time, Disney bought Wide Load. Mm-hmm. And sort of my, my life plan, knowing that I wanted to go into games at such a young age, was to graduate, go to a big, medium to large company, like Wide mm-hmm. Load was perfect, and then s- stay there for six years. <laughs> I don't know how I decided on six and then steal the best people to start an indie game company. Okay. I couldn't stand Disney for mm-hmm. that long, so it lasted for three years, and, but then did manage to leave with Ben and Eric, so it all yeah, worked out. Yeah, did steal <laughs> two very great people, so that's, that's a great story. How about you, Ben? A very similar story to Tom's, maybe a little less planned, but you know, I, I think you go, you talk to people who are in, in games, especially sort of our age, I think a lot of them are going to say like, I played video games when I was a kid, and at some point I was like, I should do this for a living, and you just ran with that for mm-hmm. as long as you could. So, yeah, I was also, you know, a big video game nerd growing up, got into high school, got into math, and that sort of segued in the senior year. There was a couple programming classes that were available. I started taking those. I think that was sort of when the light clicked. It's like, oh, that's what you do to make video games. Like, it's not just about you know, studying math or studying art. It's actually programming is a critical element, and that's actually what I wanted. It, it, was definitely a sort of a unusual experience knowing that I, I wanted to be making games, but I didn't really have the vocabulary for how I mm-hmm. wanted to be doing that. But that was definitely the, the light bulb moment was senior year. So then coming out of a senior year of high school, I was looking around at colleges and I was living in Chicago. I've, I've lived in Chicago my whole life. Saw that DePaul had a game dev curriculum um, that just sort of, you know, seemed like it was mm-hmm. a perfect fit. So signed up, went to DePaul for four years Oddly enough, didn't really start taking any game dev classes until like my, the end of my third year when I was a, what would that be? Junior. Yeah. Junior. Junior. So that was a bit of a, an odd experience, sort of like having to dip out from, from high school all the way through to junior year of college. I don't think I really did much mm-hmm. in games other than play them, obviously. Right. 
But then junior year, maybe it worked out, I guess, because all of a sudden the last like year and a half, two years of college were nothing but making games. Mm-hmm. So DePaul, that was kind of an interesting experience because as compared to Tom, the DePaul game dev curriculum was supposed to be multidisciplinary. It was supposed to be you choose a focus eventually, but otherwise you take multiple classes that, you know, you, you theorize about design, maybe you do some programming, some light programming, maybe you do some light art and some capacity like 3D modeling. And through that process, theoretically, you figure out what you want to do long term. But I sort of already knew what I wanted to do, which helped, I guess, in some way. You know, I didn't have to wander and consider and, and mm-hmm. fret over it. But yeah, so senior year of DePaul, I was taking a few different classes. One of them was, I think, uh, a modding class uh, that happened to be taught by uh-huh. Patrick Curry. Uh, so I was going to think was, was, that was my guess. Oh my God. Curry's going to be in this yep. equation here. Yep. That's right. Yeah. So definitely, I think, you know, looking back on it, a huge, a huge benefit of having gone to college here in Chicago, where there were, are still a few game studios, is often you'll find people who work at those studios, you know, also teach right. at schools. So that was definitely my in was Patrick. He just, you know, pulled me aside one night after class and he was like, hey, you know, it seemed like, you know, you're working, working hard and we're looking for an intern at Wide Load. And was that something you'd be interested in? And I said, yes. So started interning at Wide Load. Um, we were working on uh, the sort of middle production of Guilty Party yeah. at the time. Started getting my feet wet doing UI work. And then, as Tom said, so sort of serendipitous, you know, a few, a few months after I started as an intern, Disney bought Wide Load. And as part of their infinite wisdom, they just graduated all the interns to full employees. And hmm. that's sort of where Tom and I's story joined up and Eric's really. Yeah. No, that's cool. And that's um, cool that you have that, that Curry connection because he has mm-hmm. mentored and influenced a lot of people, in, you know, in the industry. So what do you wish you had known when you had started in the industry? I think that's a really hard question. It's a really good one, but we've been reflecting a lot. After finishing Battleship, we had a lot of time to reflect on what we could improve in the mm-hmm. future. And a lot of the things we should have learned earlier, we just didn't really understand until we'd gone through it. So a lot of things... Just like we've we got a lot of advice from all sorts of people and read tons of articles, and I thought we were still pretty prepared to like start an indie company and then do everything right. ourselves. But we still weren't prepared for like burnout, for instance, after working on a game for five <laughs> years, or like understanding the importance of production, for instance, having producers who are like really focused mm-hmm. on a schedule and thinking about, in my case in particular, dealing with like answering emails or talking with lawyers or accountants and all the time that that yeah. can take up. And I think we, we did get advice for like, oh, this will be really hard and you'll have to do these things. And we just sort of felt like, oh, whatever, we'll figure it out. Right. Even if the advice seemed true at the time, it's really hard to put that into practice without having like lived through that, the lesson itself. And so I think we had, if someone had warned me about all these things, I still probably wouldn't have listened. Like a lot of the time, even today, I was giving advice to someone who's thinking about getting into the games industry. And I'm just sort of like, I mean, it's really tough and not a great career. It's really stressful. (laughs) And you're at the intersection of a lot of creativity and technical Mm -hmm. challenges. And the money can be here or absent entirely. And 
I also have to like give them the caveat that I knew those things going in and I still did it and I still love it, but it's still really tough. And so it's really hard to like give advice or accept advice until you've lived it. And unfortunately, I think the games industry is just like this crazy beast that you just got to tame yourself and <laughs> no one else can really explain yeah, it. To yeah, you. you have to jump in and, and just really absorb it to understand it. And you're like, ah, that's what they were talking about. Yeah, that, that's okay. Yeah, this part does yeah. suck. Okay, I just, but yeah, now I have to experience it and figure out my way to the other end. I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, we've been indie or you know, who knows what that means anymore these days, but we're mm-hmm. indie and we've seen a lot of people come and go in the time that we've been doing this ourselves. And I guess um, if I had to pick something that I would say, like, I wish I had known is, or I could have told myself when we started is think very seriously about, you know, if you're going to be an indie, whether you're approaching it from a sort of educational standpoint, are you teaching yourself something? Are you approaching it from a recreational standpoint or like a, a passions or artistic mm-hmm. standpoint? Those things all have their own merits. But at the end of the day, if you're going to stay doing what we do for years, you have to approach it from a financial standpoint too. Yeah. Like not just about the technical ability to execute a game. It's not just about the, you know, creative ability to make a fun game. You also have to be worried about things like, where am I going to be in five years? Like, what will my priorities be in five years? And that's hard, that's hard to answer no matter who you are, whether you're a game developer mm-hmm. or not. But those are exactly the sorts of things that, like, you need to start planning for if you're going to be making a game because most people take at least a year or two to make anything. And honestly, probably most projects last longer than right. that. So yeah, just, you know, budgeting, budgeting your time and expecting everything to take, you know, a few years at least and, and being honest about, okay, well, can I do this for a few years? Like what will that, what impact will that have to right. future me? And, yeah. And to your bank account and, and, and can you, you know, sustain if it, takes you that much longer and the steel doesn't come through and um, you know, do you have the wherewithal and are you, you know, prepared for it? Yeah. There's a really, uh, a couple really important things that we see in Indies all the time that we somehow dodged. And those are having savings before you start an indie mm-hmm. games company and having really good teammates before you yep. do that too. There are a lot of solo developers and I just feel so bad for them because it's so much pressure and weight to take on yourself and try to tackle everything yourself. Um, And so I'm really glad that like, I'm not doing this alone. (laughs) Like Ben and Eric have been able to like fill whenever I'm like not capable of doing something, they can do it, you know, and that we were never super desperate for money. Like we got fairly desperate and that's why we did a Kickstarter without really having a finished demo. (laughs) But it meant that we weren't desperate the whole time. We were able to, for better or for worse, take our time with Battleship. Yeah. Hats off to you guys, right? I mean, you've been doing this for five years and degree of fortitude and like, you know, just diligence to get through it because a lot of people I, I think are naive about it and they get into it like a, they don't plan. And then like a year in, they're like, wait a minute, I didn't get a billion downloads on Steam and I'm not a millionaire? What? You know, and um, I think sometimes people are naive what it takes and the, and the fact that you guys planned ahead, you had some, some cash reserves and you approach it also as a business. It's not strictly artistic, you know, making a great game is like half the equation. You, you know, you have to get it to market and figure out how to acquire users and all those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, credit to you guys for doing this and, and five years in, I remember when you guys left uh, wide load, I was crushed, but 
I am very happy for you and proud for you guys because that's that's cool that what you've done and you, you guys haven't given up and it wasn't just peter out or anything. You you guys are, are five years and you're still going, so that's great. Yeah, thank you very yeah, much. Nice. Yeah, it was five years on Battleship, but we actually left Wide Load seven years ago next seven. month. Wow, yeah, okay. We made two mobile games first before deciding. Then we made those really quickly. They were two months each. And then we we're like, let's make a year and a half right. long project. And that's what it turned into five years of okay. Battleship. Yeah, because yeah, Wide Load went down in 2014 and, and, and you guys were out of there before that. So yeah, okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's good stuff. What about advice you would you know give someone that say is in engineering or programming specifically? Like, what kind of advice do you have out there for people that want to further their career also as as an engineer? Well, I guess I want to touch back a little bit to what I said earlier about my path through mm-hmm. to yeah. being where I'm at now. I will say that you know I met a lot of great people at DePaul. I think I really did enjoy the curriculum there, and obviously. Meeting Patrick was my gateway into the industry, but looking back at it now, I feel like I would caution people who are considering getting a degree specifically in game development, Mm -hmm. mostly from the perspective of, I don't feel like being exposed to all the variety of professions within game development is going to illuminate the path for you that you're going to figure out if you didn't know coming into it, whether you wanted to be an artist or a programmer or designer you know, having a shotgun blast of those things occur to you is not going to help. Yeah. So there are times when I wish I had actually gotten a computer science degree because I think I might have just, you know, come into the field a little bit with a little bit stronger of a mm-hmm. background. So, yeah, I think that would be my primary advice is just, you know, there should be plenty of opportunities for someone to figure out what they want to do in game development outside of school. Making that decision in school isn't the right course. Like, And that sort of dovetails into another general piece of advice for anybody who's looking for their first job. And that's, you're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to do stuff on the side to prove that you're passionate about making games. Mm -hmm. And so in the course of doing that, you should be able to figure out, you know, what sort of specialty you're interested in. Right. It is one of those things too, where you have to have some, uh, some resilience and some perseverance and you have to be able to try to make something fail or make something that's not very good and just keep going. That's definitely a part of any learning process. I think maybe it's a little lost on people who are first starting out making games. Like there's this expectation that you'll be making things fun right out of the gate, but that's probably not going to be the case. Yeah. And just to speak a little bit about just that general game development thing, I I agree also just as somebody that, you know, has roles to fill and is trying to figure out how to build a team and all those kind of things, you know, it's like, all right, what's our portfolio? Or, 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 all right, we're going to send a design test or we're going to send an engineering test there's a little bit of the jack of all master of none type. It's like, well, what does this person do? Right. And are they, what are they great at? Not, you know, what do they dabble in, but like they can write amazing code or they awesome modeler or, or whatever it is. So yeah, I, I think you, you need to explore that and figure out what it is, but just dabbling in all these things, it's not necessarily setting you up for a future career because again, you can't really illustrate anything specific done in excellence if if you're kind of a jack of all master of none type thing that's just kind of my two cents but yeah and then what about you know you guys been into it for a while now like on the engineering front to other engineers like yeah you know i need to learn unity learn unreal c sharp or this new language is cool you know those kind of things like what kind of advice do you want to give current engineers that are looking to 
go to the next stage? Hmm. That is an interesting question. <laughs> I think, I mean, I don't know how Tom feels about this, but I grapple with this question myself mm-hmm. somewhat frequently. The type of games that we make do not require us to explore new technologies particularly often, like primarily because we use Unity, but also because Eric, our artist, is amazing, but it's also always 2D. So like 3D will never be in our repertoire. That's not just something that wouldn't make business sense to mm-hmm. start exploring. So I don't really know how, like, we haven't really had that many opportunities to explore other interesting tech challenges. And in fact, it almost feels like every time we try to explore that lesson coming out the other side is, that was a total waste of time. That did not actually help us make this game any Mm -hmm. faster. And next time we should just do it the way that we can do things fastest, which is what we've always been doing. Yeah, I don't know. If, no, yeah, there's. I, I think that on our like current stuff that we're working on, our big focus is not on like innovative, new, unique technologies. It's more about how do we make games that are better, faster. We're still using a lot of like engineering tricks, and like we're on the cutting edge of C sharp features whenever they show up in Unity and what Unity supports. But it's not in service just like trying out new things it's stuff that the player will never see other than the game being better the things that or tools especially that allow us to iterate faster play test more often write code faster that sort of thing yeah so like i think that's an interesting place that we weren't in i think ever at wide load it was sort of like we just gotta figure out how to make this work and now we're at the level where we're like we're progressing from how do we make this work to like, how do we make this into a sort of efficient business process (laughs) of making fun stuff. It's sort of like working on like manufacturing. It's Kanban. uh, You're refining the process, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're, we're modifying the process and not necessarily the output. Yeah. If we can make a combine go twice as fast, then you'd be a lot more corn, even if it's not uh, like the greatest combine ever or something. Sorry. I mean, I mean, combine the um, agile term, like, like it's just like, like continuous oh. improvement, right? Like, all right. We didn't even yeah. know that was a thing. Nope. We've been out of the agile game. <laughs> I'm going to talk to that Justin Fisher guy. He's <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Agile. agile. Got that? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess the one thing I would say is, you know, I think, We need to do this a little bit more at Trinket Studios, but there are opportunities to, you know, consider technologies you're not using and then try them in a very limited Mm -hmm. case. Um, I guess a very simple example for us would be at some point during the development of Battleship, our game had gotten so big in terms of not just code, but art assets, that every time we needed to make a build, which itself was becoming a more frequent need for a variety of reasons, you know, we're taking it to the convention, we're showing it... Packs, right. So we were just making the builds manually on our own workstations. And at some point we decided, okay, well, maybe we should take a crack at setting up a, a build server mm-hmm. locally. So I just spent a little bit of time investigating that. And so I think that was useful for a period. But I think also the takeaway was at a certain point, I started spending too much time trying to make this build system fully automated and, and you know, support multiple platforms, support multiple branches. And while those things, yeah. you know, arguably would be nice the amount of time i invested in doing that ended up being probably a net loss so maybe the takeaway is you know sort of do your reading due diligence research be aware of Mm -hmm. what the options are and then if you decide to try them because you think it'll be 
uh, a net gain for yeah. your productivity. Try it in sort of a, a yeah, limited time scenario. Boxing, you know? yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of managing our trade-offs that really matters with such a small team, especially like it's really easy as programmers to focus on the programming problems that yeah. we can solve. Sometimes our time is better spent, even if we're not as good at it, at something like marketing or just like pressing a, a button to make a build is great. But if that comes at the cost of like improving the website or like researching our competitors or something, then it was actually not the greatest idea to make a really elegant build system. And we run into that all the time. Sort of like if we accidentally build, like if we're making a building and we think it's going to be a gym and we build it to be an awesome gym and then halfway through, we're like, just kidding, this is a school now. <laughs> then we wasted a lot of time like setting up basketball courts yeah. or something. And that's like a really, really hard problem. And we sort of just rely on each other to like put up a flag when something's going in the wrong direction. And Eric is super great at that where like if Ben and I are just like off in the weeds making some like little tiny fairy right. house or something. And then Eric will be like, Hey, I need this feature for the art to look good. <laughs> and we're like, oh, yeah, that's important. Not what we were trying to like make really nice and elegant. Yeah. Over yeah they call that, um, especially with engineers, it's like gold plating. Like, like ah, I got this thing. I'm just yeah. going to do this one more thing. And it's going to be awesome. And the thing is like, Whoa, dude, two, three weeks went by. What the hell? You know, it's like, yeah, you have to time box it and have someone kind of keeping you in check. And do you guys are all in one space or, or sometimes remote or I'm just curious, like, like what's your work arrangement there for how you collaborate? We work out of the Indy City Co-op. It's up sort of west of Wrigley oh. Field. And there's maybe 20 Indies who work out of here, mostly solo. I think the largest team is four. So, so there's like, it's a really great atmosphere, but then recently we've been trying to make sure that we can support more working from home slash remote work so that as we grow older, our schedules become more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so we're trying to make sure that we can retain efficiency while also like really using the flexibility we have as indies because that's super great. Yeah. No, that's cool. I think I knew of that place, but I, yeah, I'll have to Google it and check it out because that, that's cool. So what about projects tell me like your your favorite game or project to work on hmm. well i guess i'll always have sort of a bittersweet soft spot for i'm not actually sure to what extent i'm allowed to talk about this anymore oh let's just say there was a project that we worked on while we were at wide load at some point where it was an interesting challenge an interesting technical challenge that i was allowed to go with mm. for a while we got it working and then literally the same day we decided we were moving on to another project. And it was one of those, those bittersweet moments of like, ah, I got this, this working. And actually, in some ways, I'm relieved that we don't need to move forward with it. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, on that was just yeah. not great. That will always be one of my favorite moments. It's like, I am absolved <laughs> of this. I got it done. I could sleep with a clear conscience tonight. But, but shit, yes, you pulled the carpet yeah. out from underneath me. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think at least one of my favorite projects was uh i forget what we called it but on wide load charts there was a period when we got access to what became connect back when it was called project natal and we were tasked with just sort of like make a game using this so that it can be ready for launch and the team sort of went crazy with different <laughs> ideas and one of them was really ridiculous raj another yeah, programmer raj, at right. wide load made spaz cash and that was sort of a test <laughs> of the tracking of the connect where 
you just you had like maybe 60 seconds and you just had to like you would get points or cash right. in this case for how much each of the bones it was tracking would move <laughs> so try to like move a lot and you get a lot of points but to get a ton of cash you had to like get it to break tracking by like hiding your limbs behind yourself but like as fast <laughs> as possible <laughs> So we'd have a lot of testing where Raj, Raj would be in there just sort of like jumping around and spinning <laughs> and throwing his arms all around. And it was really fun. Like there was something about the Kinect and we never released the game, huh. but it turned into this sort of like really unique development environment where we were standing up and moving all the time while testing our games. And there, that is just like something we've never really experienced. We're both like adjusting our posture right, right now. This sitting at a desk, right? Not like so moving around. Exactly. And that was like really fun to be playing with new technology like that and just having this like totally free form experience. Then as Ben said, it was it was a similar situation where like we thought we'd made something really fun, we'd iterated on it, and then it was thrown <laughs> in the trash. But for that period it was great. Okay, quick question break. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have a topic idea, a question to ask, or a guest suggestion? Let me know at 224-484-7733 or on the gamedevadvice.com website. We can't license this. There's no merchandise we can even make out of it. Mm. What the hell? No, it's always fun playing with new tech and seeing where you can take it and what kind of cool things you can do with it, especially back then. You know, that was, it's kind of commonplace or whatever now, but back then it had to be pretty cool to be involved in something where you're moving and it's like, whoa, this is totally new. It's like tracking and it's, you know, a hell of a lot better than the Wii. And uh, yeah. So what are you um, curious about right now in the industry? I'm really curious to see what happens with streaming consoles. I think, I mean, I feel like it's not actually that exciting. I think all of the consumer facing features of streaming consoles are things that the average gamer is not going to be super Mm -hmm. excited about or at least I haven't heard of that many, but I think it'll have a pretty large impact on the development cycle. And, you know, I mean, you're talking about developing theoretically for one platform, but having it be able to stream to any number of computers and TVs, Mm -hmm. that sounds pretty appealing. But at the same time, I think it'll also, um, at least for indies, increase the sort of expectations that consumers will have Mm -hmm. for features. Like, well, you know, Suddenly, I guess the point is, suddenly you're putting these big AAA titles on a TV streaming through your console, and it's going to be next to or alongside an indie game. And it'll be a lot harder to justify as an indie, like, well, why don't you have multiplayer? It's streaming in the cloud. It should be just as easy as, right. you know, this sort of similar argument that's made about Unity. It's like, well, you all are using Unity. Why don't you just press the use physics buttons? And then there's just automatically, you know, ragdoll physics, and everything works <laughs> perfectly. And it's just like a little right. sandbox. I think that that expectation will continue to grow in the consumer base. And I just, I, I'm worried to some extent about how much Indies will be impacted mm-hmm. by that. I'm really excited to see what happens with AR once it gets more mass marketable, Yeah, especially in the context of like kids and teens, like thinking about the progression of uh, sort of Pokemon Go, Fortnite, Minecraft, And then considering things like Snapchat and how they're all sort of linked. Like Snapchat has a performative aspect, but like Fortnite 
you really have a performative aspect where you're like showing off for your friends and you can have celebrities and like all be in this sort of semi-structured social environment. I think Pokemon Go has like a lot of potential in that vein once AR is cheap Mm -hmm. enough. And so I think there'll be something really cool where like probably kids and teenagers will take over some like bizarre AR space where they can hang out, but still game to some degree so that they can have like uh, hierarchies and beat (laughs) up on each other and have like, it's fascinating how Fortnite sort of took over some of that group chat Mm -hmm. feel for groups of friends. And I think that's going to be so cool when, when that happens with AR and they'll have like places in the real world or in their school or at home Mm -hmm. To sort of build these shared experiences that are both virtual and real, that's going to be really yeah, cool. Yeah, no, and you, you just think about, you know, what a phenomenon Pokemon Go was, right? For a period there, it was just yeah. crazy. I, I remember driving home late one night through this little town that's it's normally tumbleweeds, right? And I'm just I'm like, what are all these people doing walking around? And I'm like, hmm. oh, they're staring at their phones. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, they're like out at 11 o'clock going through Algonquin, Illinois, hmm. you know, walking around trying to collect stuff. And like my sons even went out and bought, you know, battery packs for keeping their batteries going on their phones and stuff. So, you know, it just, it had like that flashpoint of, you know, everyone was doing it except for me, the old man. But yeah, it was pretty phenomenal. And it's like, okay, what's next, you know, along those lines and AR and VR, when it starts getting price point gets down and and, uh, the barriers entry are easier and you don't need a big ass computer to run it and all those kind of things, at least for VR. Yeah. What's going to, what's going to happen? What's going to change? What's going to be the landscape? What about the, um, you talked a little bit about this, Ben, but like potential threats that you see to the game industry or things that you're concerned about besides streaming and indies. I mean, I guess in some ways it's been a while now, but you know, steam has constantly had that air of like race to the bottom sort of app store issue. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, suddenly there's this big glut of games that are on the scene which don't represent like what we might perceive as good games, games worth, you know, even looking yeah. at on Steam. And whether that, you know, makes discoverability a bigger problem, I don't know. I guess th- it's odd to think about now because I remember having those discussions while we were in the middle of working on Battleshef. And overall, I don't feel like it impacted the release of our game that much. But I guess maybe that just speaks to the fact that our game was, you know, some tier higher than than some of the other much smaller games mm-hmm. out there. But I guess in general, you know, discoverability and the constant price point dropping of certain genres and I guess certain tiers of quality. Like apparently yeah. it doesn't seem like AAA is particularly impacted by this in any way. It seems like price points hold pretty steady, but you know, the, the general economics of like, how do you get a consumer to shell out money for something that you spent a lot of time and money on yourself is always uh, at the forefront of our minds. Yeah. I think there's a there's an unfortunate sort of like slow creep of gambling into video games. Mm. And like the progression through from like expansion packs to DLC to microtransactions to free to play is getting closer and closer already is gambling, at least according to yeah. some countries. And I think that that's like really disappointing. Like if you're playing games not for some of the other possibly still addicting reasons, but if it's just straight up mm-hmm. addiction, I think that's really bad for 
games in general, like it's really hard for EA to not do that <laughs> <laughs> or Zynga. Like they're sort of, they're in position to take advantage of people and it's really hard not to just do it. I think that's really terrible. And hopefully regulation can help uh, stem that tide, at least for kids, hopefully. Mm-hmm. That is a really weird spot where like, the $60 price tag on games hasn't gone up in a really long time. So people are sort of taking advantage of other avenues, some of which are more acceptable than others. Right. And, and for better or for worse, it seems like gamers, capital G gamers, will get in an uproar about something, but it usually doesn't really affect the Metacritic or sales numbers. And so there hasn't been this sort of backlash against it that I would hope to see. There's some hope mm. maybe like, I mean, Facebook games sort of came and went maybe because people who are new to the games on Facebook or the games Mm -hmm. industry in general weren't like used to the different business models. And so maybe they learned eventually like, oh, this game is taking advantage of me. And then I moved to mobile. And I don't know if if people have really escaped free to play on mobile, but maybe there's hope (laughs) that it doesn't just end up as gambling on the phone. Yeah, and this is recorded today on May 8th. So there's... I don't know if you guys saw it, but there's um, game studios would be banned from selling loot boxes to minors under new law. So there was a law introduced today banning manipulative design features in video games with underage audiences, including the sale of loot boxes. And and that um, that just came out today. And yeah, to your point, I know over in Europe, there are some areas, uh, some countries that are, it's illegal because yeah, it can be, you're dealing with minors and sometimes you're dealing with people that have compulsion issues and things and it's, it starts, it's a slippery slope and it can be kind of sketchy. What's a funnier odd story from working in the game industry? I think I, I might actually have one. Uh, so this was probably maybe two or three years into working on Battle Chef. We wanted to start taking the game around to conventions, start getting feedback on you know whether people liked it or not. Obviously, that's a little late in the cycle to be doing it, but mm-hmm. that's what we did anyways. Uh, we also didn't really feel quite comfortable committing to something large like PAX yet. So we found out that there was a small convention or a smaller convention in the Indianapolis, which is a relatively short four to five hour drive right. from Chicago. So we signed up to go to that and showed the game off. Everything was going well. And then unbeknownst to us, they had signed up a bunch of YouTubers, like very prominent YouTubers to come out and review the games huh. and amongst them was uh, markiplier who i guess is and was a, both a huge you okay. know personality and of course us in our desire to get the game a little bit more publicity just trying to you know find whatever we could grab we we're like well maybe we can go give them a personal letter so we went out and we got some <laughs> pizza to like think yeah. the idea over and we ended up getting envelopes, uh, Eric drew like little chibi characters of all the YouTubers uh-huh. on the envelopes. And then we went out and bought USB flash drives, put a copy of the demo on it. And we wrote notes to them saying something to the effect of like, hi, thanks for coming. Thanks for showing up to the convention. If you have a chance, we'd love it if you could check out our demo. And then hmm. we gave those to somebody at the convention and never heard anything back at all. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to make it even worse, they were supposed to just like come around and play yeah. all of our games. But not only are they super famous and like really most of the attendees yeah. were there to meet them, but it was also Markiplier's birthday, one of the days. Yeah. <laughs> and so 
his line was conveniently near the like indie mm-hmm. games area, but it was also completely full of like wow. teenagers. <laughs> And so instead of being able to bring the YouTubers around to us, they were just like, yeah, we can give them a bag of stuff to look at if you want. <laughs> so that's when we hatched that plan. It never paid off, but it was a lot of fun to feel like we were doing some guerrilla marketing. Yeah, it definitely felt like this is our moment. We just have to be sneaky right. enough to flip the build into right. the right hand. Years back, uh, years from now, we're going to look back at this and this is the turning point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's like, what the hell, man? Check out the demo. So what's a game that you're playing now or excited about, you know, outside of making Battle Chef, like if you have time to play games still? I don't think any of us have that much time anymore. I find myself when I do find have time, I play Slay the Spire, mm-hmm. which is actually kind of great. I, I found myself gravitating towards games that are shorter and also ones that I can use with Steam Link. So I have a Steam mm-hmm. Link at home. Uh, Slay the Spire, as far as I know, doesn't have a mobile version but you can stream it onto your phone, which is great because it's also a one-handed game where I don't need to be typing. So I can hold uh, my daughter in one hand and then like be playing cards with mm-hmm. the other hand. It's, it's a slow process, but it's the sort of thing. It's like I can be feeding her a bottle, but also, you know, play That's cards. Cool. So got to gotta find the games that, you know, fit yeah, into yeah, your lifestyle. It, what was it called again? I, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, Slay huh. the Spire. It's uh, on Steam and I think on consoles now too. Maybe just Switch, but uh, it's a... Uh, like deck building okay. card game. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Cool. What about you, Tom? Anything? I have been playing very minimal amount of actual games. I'd, I'd say that most of my game playing time is playing other indies in development games, which I really mm-hmm. enjoy doing. Like it makes me a better designer and I try to give good feedback yeah. and all that. It's sort of great practice, but none of them have come out yet. Uh. So. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I can't tell you about them. And to your point, Ben, too, yes, when your uh, life changes, it, you have to to do different ways of, of gaming and figure out how to make it fit with your schedule. You know, you can't sit down in front of a console for three and a half hours and, and do stuff. Yeah, so, totally. yeah, there's there is that need for, you know, mobile and shorter and quicker experiences. Um, and yeah, that, that that seems to be obviously a big trend just because people's lives are busy. And even if there is time, there's so much, you know, going for their attention right now. There's so many things they can do that it is harder and harder to get, get those long chunks of focused council time. Like you could in years past. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything I should have asked you about, but didn't like, Hey man, what the hell? Why didn't you ask me about this? <laughs> I think a great topic uh, to talk with you specifically is the role of producers in the games mm-hmm. industry. Because looking back at, at the time that we were at Wideload, I did not respect, well, oh, I didn't respect a lot of people because I was a naive sort of little <laughs> jerk, but, and hopefully that didn't come across no. too clearly, but like, I really thought like, oh, I've got this figured out, I can right. make a game. And looking back, I'm like, wow, I didn't know anything and producers are super valuable. And I was just super focused on gold plating my own little part mm-hmm. of the game, you know? Like I, I remember on... Uh, Guilty Party, the Wildlife Shorts team was sort of tasked with, a few of us were tasked with helping out to um, add more of the like detection mini games to uh-huh. Guilty Party. I was having a blast. Like they gave me a list of like 20 or something to do. And I just started going through them and I would come up with new ones that I thought should be in the game. And I just went ahead and added some of those. 
And then <laughs> I remember being like so proud. I added this one that was like, there are a whole bunch of different gears and you had to like figure out how to put them together. So the whole machine would turn and I'd made it. So like it was somewhat physically accurate. <laughs> so like the teeth and the gears yeah, would yeah. mesh and like actually rotate. That was very much gold plating, but I tried to gold plate a little bit of each yeah. one of these and I got complimented on that. So that was a problem too. But this gear one was totally not in the plan. And I remember Patrick Curry coming around and I'm sure he was super stressed and he just come from a meeting where like everyone had been like, Oh, when is this damn game going to be done? <laughs> I was like, yeah, check out this extra one I made. And he was like, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> and like i thought like oh yeah i had like plenty of time no right. problem but from his perspective the larger more important business perspective like this was totally unimportant i think i like sort of convinced him was like well now we can say that there's 50 plus instead of 50. <laughs> <laughs> but like he i just remember like not understanding his mm-hmm. perspective in that and i was like oh shit there are things that matter more than just like the mini games <laughs> right. in Guilty Party, there are better things that an engineering time could be spent on. And I really, I really didn't appreciate that. And I, I did the same thing on Avengers Initiative Hulk. Mm-hmm. And now looking back on Battleship, there's no one to blame but myself for a lot of those things where we took five years on something that we could have spent less time on. Like uh, if a lot of times when I'm wearing the producer hat, it just straight up conflicts with the engineer yeah. programmer hat. Those are tough hats to wear to, to be able to flip between those. Yeah. Like, this is gonna be cool, and you know, like, what the hell? Get done with it already. We got this other shit to do, you know. And it's got to be a little schizophrenic to yeah. try and go between. Yeah, and it's especially I think I think tough on a small team where if we're having a brainstorm session or really a design meeting because we also don't have designers, <laughs> <laughs> and someone brings up something. I need to be careful and I've not been careful in the past of differentiating whether my response is from producer Tom or designer Tom or programmer (laughs) Tom. And a lot of times I'll sort of mix those together and try to use like definitely for the worse, I'll use my like programming expertise to say that something is a bad idea because I feel a bit worried about it as a producer. And that's like really not great, especially for Eric, where he can't argue back against programmer Tom because he's not Uh, a programmer. Really, he should have just as much say in the design and probably the production mm -hmm. as well, uh, like figuring out those priorities. And so that's been like a hard lesson to learn, I think. And it's somewhere like, thank goodness, Ben and Eric are forgiving. (laughs) And there's that same aspect of sort of load balancing yourself can be really hard where we added some features to Battleship that were just sort of, I perceived them as easy to do engineering wise. Mm-hmm. And we were feeling like, okay, art is the hardest thing on Battleship. So Eric is ma- managing like 10 artists. There's not much Ben and I can do to help him there yeah. right now. So let's add this feature that's almost entirely engineering. And then that was just such a mistake so many times. It just sort of increased scope. And we weren't like, for instance, one of those features, like, oh, we'll add, uh, like combat only levels where you can get on a leaderboard to compete against your Mm -hmm. friends or whatever. Maybe 2% of our players played those, but they added at least a couple weeks of Nintendo switch certification Uh, because like any network features that you have add a lot mm -hmm. of complexity. And so that was one of those things where I was like, ah, I've got some extra cycles. I can add this thing. And then it resulted in 
downstream a lot of extra mm-hmm. work. And it's really hard to like be aware of that. But hopefully on our, our next, our, on, our, on our ongoing work, like we're more aware of that and can make better right. decisions. Yeah. And, and that's where the producer comes in that is more at the 30,000 foot level that can be like, yeah, great. That, you know, that takes five days, but then it's going to add this, this, and that, you know, between internal testing and then certification and all those kind of things. And what's then what's our ROI and doing this. And is you know, is that time spent better doing something else? And, you know, I remember at wide load again, Justin Fisher was, we were big into, you know, sprint planning and the Fibonacci sequence and stuff. So it used to be interesting. We would go in that back room and go through features and we'd have, you know, discipline leads and everyone would vote and we'd put the cards down, you know, what we thought just t-shirt sizing, what it, what something would cost. And sometimes everyone would say a three or, you know, whatever, but other times there'd be these huge gaps or someone would say like a two and someone would say like, you know, a seven or a nine. And it's like, well, why is that? You know, you know, in my world, it's a two because all I got to do is blah. And then the other person from the other discipline would be like, well, yeah, but then I got to do X, Y, and Z and then A, B, and C. Oh, okay. And then, then they would come to like a consensus between the numbers and kind of meet somewhere or sometimes meet, just meet at the higher number just because they don't have blinders on, but they're, they're just not as cognizant of the other's work that goes into it. And that would kind of help keep us a little bit more honest on what we were biting off just because we had these different perspectives and it wasn't just people from one discipline saying, well, yeah, that's easy. I can do it in a couple of days and not knowing downstream what the other work is and things like that. Yeah. I think I'd really love to hear from more of your interviewees, like what their sort of day-to-day, not just workflow is, but sort of their production Mm -hmm. mentality. Because I think, you know, I mean, I would say that we're probably still not great at it, but we've gotten better. But what we do for production, you know, for producing the game and, and setting a schedule is, I would say, not any sort of standard methodology that Mm -hmm. we've heard of and i think that's just the result of the fact that when you're in the stream when you're in a week of work you know things just do not go according to plan and not everybody's in the office at the same time like we don't always you know we can we can communicate on slack but we're not all on Mm -hmm. at the same time and then you know it, it always has that feeling of well i could i could start the side conversation now and stop everybody but that stops everybody right so I got to this point where I think our production method is sort of try to do play tests at the end of a week from the play tests and using our own sort of internal guess as to what the next important system is. Pick a system, talk about all the design and tasking mm-hmm. that's related to that, and then task it all out ideally on Friday. And then everybody's off to the races over the weekend or starting Monday. And so far, that's been working pretty well for us. Um, but that you know, hasn't been in place the whole time. And, but I think it's definitely a system born out of the fact that there's three of us and we're all sort of always overtasked and there's always more that we need to do. And none of us can just wear the producer right. hat all the time. So I'd be really interested in knowing, you know, hearing from more people what their experience is with trying to wrangle themselves. Yeah, no, that, that, that's good. And, and yeah, I, I need to reach out to get more producers on the show and, and share their experiences and other people that are doing indie and developing on their own. I think it's smart to, if you can, kind of do a lot of the planning and, and wrap up and all that stuff on Friday so that, you know, over the weekend or ideally Monday, when you come in, 
the table's set, you know what you have to do. And it's not like, all right, where were we? And we got to figure out this, the planning part and, you know, all those kind of things. It's like, all right, let's go. We're off to the races. And um, you can kind of start the week off with a clean slate and a uh, forward momentum versus trying to do planning or trying to recap things and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And there's all the tools out there. You know, there's Jira, you know, Handsoft seemed kind of lost its uh, market share for a variety of reasons. But yeah, there's Jira and sometimes Jira is too heavy. So there's always like Trello, you know, which was bought by Lazian that owns Jira. So there's different tools out there and there's other smaller, lightweight kind of project management tools and things. But um, yeah, and, and there's other tools that are even geared more towards like cinematics or, or 2D type things. Cool. All right. Anything else to talk about? Any Anything you want to put a shout out to? I'll, I'll put some stuff in the notes and um, yeah, I'll, I'll have some stuff together. But any other parting words? Thank you very much. <laughs> no, Thanks. thank you guys. I'm I'm glad we were able to make this work out. I've again, it's been cool to see what you guys have done since uh, leaving Wide Load Disney and um, and how you're still going and on different platforms and all those cool things. So, wish you nothing but continued success and excited to see what happens in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. If you found it interesting or helpful, please leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. I have a lot of great episodes coming out. As always, I want to hear from you, the game development community. So give me a call at 224-484-7733 or reach out on the website, gamedevadvice.com. I want to know your struggles, your questions, and your ideas since the podcast is really about you, the fellow game developer, and our game development community. Thanks and take care.